This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Cholly, and from this week you are going to get five helpings of the podcast in your feed my time to show is now going to be available on fridays and then soon afterwards you will get a podcast too and we want to hear from more of you who are listening in glamorous places. Now, it could be glamorous in the UK or glamorous around the world. Uh, Tim's been in touch saying, I love listening to your podcast to keep up to date with interesting news about dear old Blighty while walking home from work in Bangkok and at weekends on my yacht in Phuket. There we are. Anyone, any other yacht, yacht dwellers, do get in touch. You can email me, matt.cholly at times.radio. We'll give you a mention on the podcast, and we might even get you on the radio show very soon as well. Right, coming up today, have you woken up and discovered you've got a job in the Shadow Cabinet? We take a look at Keir Starmer's reshuffle, but more importantly, what on earth is Labour going to do, uh, given the outcome of the elections? There's only thing they can learn from what happened in Wales. What's happening in Scotland too? We've got a stellar lineup of elections experts professor sir john curtis and professor roger scully picking over the election results uh, we'll also hear from deborah mattinson who you'll know regular on the podcast uh, talking about keir starmer because she is now his head of strategy we've been digging through the archive to see what she said about him before all that is coming up on the podcast but first of course we kick off with our columnist panel it's monday so it must be libby rachie it's libby purvis and rachel sylvester Let's start with that then, as we've got straight into it. Or, explain, you, or, or, or we'll see. Explain this, Libby. You've written about it in your column today. It's a, it's a shocking word, but uh, it, it's been coined in the 1960s as a parallel to literacy and numeracy. And there is some concern as a parliamentary group which is concerned about the fact that because of the pressure on other targets in education, that the... the art of encouraging children to speak to order their thoughts that's the first thing and then speak clearly in their own language whoever the audience is it might be public speaking it might be simply speaking at an interview it might be speaking at a shop it's that sort of focus and clarity without which nobody can really get on and also without which nobody can have a decent argument because we're living at the moment in a time of knee-jerk ridiculous uh, sort of uh, cancel instant cancel I'm not listening to you I hate you you're a Nazi you're a transphobe won't listen and we need that art of argument and the art of argument sometimes has to be oral it can't all be typed out and on, uh, online 
it has to be spoken clearly and it's really important and of course a lot of children are now turning up they say at reception you know, and I'm sure Rachel knows about this uh, with far less ability than the lot of a couple of years before had um, ability to speak and, and speak openly because they've been uh, they've been shut away with screens and very busy stressed parents and probably a dearth of granny time because grannies are brilliant at encouraging children to converse so it, it, it was just an interesting one to pick up on as, as it is very much in the air and there is this uh, project about it it is, it is fascinating. In fact, I um, was it last week or the week before J uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the, the leader of the Commons, was was complaining about the um, basically the poor quality of speeches in the House of Commons, and making the point that um, you know too many, uh, particularly new MPs, just sort of turn up on Zoom, read out their three minutes of whatever it is they were planning to say, and mm. then sort of log off. And there's no debate, and there's no sort of there's not really any even any sense of trying to persuade people through the power of voluntary. It's just you know I'm going to say my bit, and that's it, Rachel. No, and there's all this desperate safe jargon. Everything has to be delivered and everything has to be going forward and ramping up, which means virtually nothing. You know, but people feel safe around these phrases. Yeah, what do, what I do think you think, it's Rachel? Uh, it's such a good point. And um, I was speaking to a head teacher recently who said, you know, there were children turning up in reception, not even able to say their own name because they'd heard so little language spoken to them at home. It's pretty shocking. So the, but it's also the system has kind of squeezed this thing, this kind of thing out of uh, our schools and our education system. So it's all about the mark scheme in exams. It's all about an increasingly narrow curriculum. Uh, and the things, you know, whether it was debating or drama uh, or, um, you know, reading out poetry, all those things have been squeezed out because schools you know, are forced to focus ever more narrowly on what the grades their kids are going to get at GCSEs and A-levels. Um, and that's definitely something we're going to look at in the Education Commission, that there needs to be, you have to have a sense of education as a much broader uh, endeavour. I'm definitely talking to employers, I was speaking to a business uh, leader in the city the other day who said they've just stopped looking at grades because they they just don't prepare people for the world of work, um, the exams that kids are doing. Uh, and actually what they're looking for is communication skills, the ability to collaborate with others, the ability to debate exactly as Libby says and see two sides of an argument, um, sort of project management skills, not the kind of thing that our system is preparing children for. How do you there is, there teach is a, it? There used to be a, a saying, people used to say uh, that somebody was too fond of the sound of his own voice, you know, and we all know who, who that means. But there are children who are actually afraid of the sound of their own voice. There were some very, very moving um, things on, underneath the original report on Oracy in the Times, the, the comments. Some people actually are scared to hear their own voice aloud. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that was never a problem for me at school. I, school <laughs> reports used to say things like, uh, uh, Matthew shares his ideas readily with others, uh, which is a brilliant, always oh, my favourite. Uh, for Yeah, well, exactly, wouldn't shut up, literally wouldn't <laughs> shut up. But how can you, because I suppose in a way, um, Rachel, part of the, well, how do you, and I suppose this is what the, the education, the Times Education Commission that you're doing will look at, but if you want children to be able to spell a list of words, it's quite easy to, come up with a list of words and then sort of hammer away at them until they can spell them, uh, you know, by a certain age or whatever it might be. But how do you create a situation? You know, it's much harder to sort of, unless you say every child must be able to give a 10-minute speech on any given subject or something, how do you engender this in, in within schools, do you think? Mm. 
Well, this is what we're going to be looking at, and we're going to be taking evidence from lots of experts and people to, to find ideas. But I think my sort of instinct is you need to have space in the curriculum for that kind of thing. So it's not all just about getting grazed by what's on the mark scheme and that's all that counts that schools need to there needs to be a broader way of assessing the success of a school and the success of the education system uh, that it's not just about what marks you get um, and that also there needs to be sort of factored into the um, curriculum or into the school day things that aren't just you know things that go beyond maths uh, grammar history um french that actually there is space for what is sometimes known as extracurricular but actually that shouldn't really be extracurricular it should be an integral part of the curriculum and the school day so whether that's debating or drama uh or art or sport actually as well though that doesn't particularly deal with oral C. but you, you need to have other things valued as much as the sort of traditional subjects and uh, Libby, it's tended to sort of be the preserve of sort of private schools in Oxbridge, you know, the idea of the debating society. But, but I actually remember my um, English teacher doing this quite a lot, you know, get a couple of pupils up in front of them, you know, and argue the toss one way or the other over, over one topic or, or not. And actually it's quite good for self-confidence, you know, just deciding, you know, working out what you might think about things, how you frame an argument, that sort of thing. They're actually... You know, just debating in, in lessons is not about, you know, it, it should not be the preserve just of posh private schools. No, of course it shouldn't. Uh, and it isn't It isn't just debating either, it's presenting. Uh, and I was terribly grateful for our tiny village school getting my extremely shy son um, up. He'd been playing a game with his toy whale and, the you know, it was a, a little play that his, he and his friend were doing. And the headmaster sort of overheard and said, hey, I would really love it if you did that at assembly. And uh, he was persuaded to. I mean, and that, you know, when a very shy child does it is is tremendous. And thereafter, you know that, you know, you did it once and it was OK and people listened. Um, I think the, the thing is to remove this business of being afraid to speak, you know, whatever you're speaking about. But it doesn't have to be debate. I mean, debate, frankly, the public school debatey thing can be a bit irritating. You know, <laughs> pre-prepared. Um, uh, yeah, actually, actually, and also chatterbox some... doesn't work either. There are some the, the chatterbox um, thing. Sorry. Go on, Rachel. You go. No, just there are some brilliant. I remember my son at our local Hackney Primary School. They had there was a debating thing, and it wasn't at all sort of pompous and public school. But it's brilliant that you have to take it to. You might have to take an argument that you don't agree with, and make that case. And it was not at all kind of public schoolian pompous it was just kids having to think about all sides of the argument uh, and again it was encouraging their confidence and things like um speakers for schools that go around uh with and they get sort of successful people to go into schools and talk about what they've done but also to to show that you know public speaking is something that anyone can do and and it's a good good idea uh, yeah, and I think yeah, and uh, maybe maybe you know some of our own political leaders can go on. I mean, the stuff that was emerging from uh, Keir Starmer's office last night was uh, borderline gibberish. The Labour Party must be the party that embraces the demand for change across our country. That requires bold <laughs> ideas and relentless focus on the priorities of the British people. Just as the pandemic has changed what is possible and what is necessary, so Labour must change too. You know, any idea what that means? Answers on a postcard <laughs> in the, to the usual uh, address. Uh, let's move on because I want to talk uh, slightly. I mean, talk about shares of ideas readily with others about something that I've written about today for the Times Red Box. But this this uh, re really I interesting idea that Boris Johnson is putting forward in the Queen's speech about uh, uh, trying to dissuade people from having to move to 
London. Uh, and the, uh, you know, trying to make... So this idea that you can only sort of get on in certain walks of life if you move to the capital. Um, and the sort of piece I've written uh, today, I sort of make the case, well, actually, instead of all this nonsense about let's move 500 civil servants out of London to York, and then you've just got a load of disgruntled civil servants in York, can't we go even further and uh, not have government departments at all? If we've learned anything from the last year, it's that you can do everything with a WhatsApp and a and a Zoom call and maybe a meet-up in London once a week or once a month. And then you could have a transport policy person who lives in Cumbria or Cornwall. And actually, as a result, policy might be uh, slightly more reflective of the rest of the country. Am I completely mad, Rachel? No, not at all. I think the worst, the sort of worst, one of the worst sort of gimmicky aspects was when they started saying we're going to move the House of Lords to York, we're going to move, uh, you know, government departments all around the country. That, as you say, that's just kind of exporting civil servants from London in a slightly patronising way to various bits of um, the country to try and prove your commitment to those areas. Um, much better to have people who actually live there and know what they're talking about. Um, but I think in, in the, the sort of underlying thing is that. Boris Johnson is right that you need to create jobs in these areas. So it's not just people from London lecturing um, these constituencies in the Red Wall or people in the so-called Red Wall having to travel to London to get jobs, that there are jobs all over. And that's the sort of secret of it in a way that there's a kind of uh, aspiration becomes something that can be local as well as, um, you know, having to involve leaving your area. Uh, Libby, the, the government seems to have identified that the uh, not always totally sexy, but actually very important uh, FE, further education sector, is going to be pretty key to this. That you've got sort of uh, cities with universities are one thing, but there are lots of towns with uh, uh, further education colleges which actually just need investment. And if people could get decent education and qualifications where they live, they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily feel the need to move. That's true, though I think there will always be the sort of adventurous stepping out to another part of the country. But I like your point about the priorities and perceptions of people far from the capital being different and therefore needing to be taken in in national policy, which doesn't happen at the moment. My worry about all this movement is that it will be Red Wall North movement. And as long as there's a Tory government which feels secure, it will ignore the safe seat places like East Anglia. What you're going to get is a kind of power spine and job spine going London, Birmingham, Manchester and to hell with all the edges. <laughs> and I think that uh, if you're going to be levelling up, you've got to level outward as well. There are a lot of very forgotten places in this country, which uh, partly because they tend to vote Conservative out of, out of old habit, uh, just get forgotten about by Conservative governments. Yeah, and while they're focusing on the, uh, the the places that Labour forgot about, there's a risk that they end up forgetting about theirs. And well, I think the, the Lib Dems are getting a bit excited about making, you know, the, chipping away at what they called the blue wall. But it, it is interesting that, that, that Boris Johnson can't, you know, neglect his uh, left flank, if you like, Rachel. No, I think that's really fascinating. And there's, um, I think uh, there was an analysis done that showed that there were 34 kind of remain supporting constituencies in those kind of Tory shire areas that were Tory in 2015, where the party supporters slipped by 5% or more. And that, that there is definitely a vulnerability if Boris Johnson keeps focusing only on the kind of red wall that he uh, and goes for a sort of more and more populist, socially conservative agenda, that he alienates the more liberal side of it. But the problem is for Labour with that is that the 
the kind of coalition, if you like, on the other side of the, on the liberal progressive side of the political equation is split. So you've got the Lib Dems, you've got the Greens who are doing increasingly well in these local elections, and you've got Labour. Whereas what mm. Boris Johnson has done so brilliantly is he's brought together Conservatives, Brexit Party, and that kind of leave supporting alliance, uh, the remain supporting alliance, which is is a sort of symbolic word for wider issues, values, uh, is split at the moment. And unless they kind of come together and coalesce, it's hard for them to challenge. Uh, Libby, what do you think? The rise of the Lib Dems and the Greens, is it one to watch? Well, I think the Greens are, are fascinating because impressive results in local authorities and in Wales. But we all know that actually every dire warning from environmentalists is effectively a party political for the Greens. And so voting green feels good and it's less trouble than doing the recycling and failing to stream movies day and night. But what we don't know, what nobody knows, is whether Greens policy has got the focus and intelligence and administration to bring about green reforms without bankrupting the economy. So I think people will go on voting green for a bit and then they'll think... Mm, don't know really you know I don't know whether they're clever enough and it, it'll it'll ease off but I do think there is this thing of every time there is a dire environmental warning it is basically a free party political broadcast for the Greens and and that's one of the reasons that they they swell up it's not individual brilliance it's it's just a, a, that mood Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester today. Of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Labour's reshuffle kerfuffle. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now let's take a look at the Labour Party. Having suffered early losses in Hartlepool, Durham and the West Midlands, things started looking up a bit for Labour on Saturday with some stronger results in London, Bristol and the West of England. So obviously the right thing to do 
was for Keir Starmer to start a civil war, a briefing war. On Saturday night, he told Angela Rayner he was removing her as party chairman in charge of elections. But it took until last night to find out that she was, in fact, uh, doing another job. In fact, rather a lot of jobs. Deputy Leader, Shadow First Secretary of State, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work, Angela Rayner. Yes, that's Angela Rayner's new uh, full job title. She becomes a Shadow uh, Secretary of State for the Duchy of Lancaster, replacing Rachel Reed, who becomes Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, who replaces Annalise Dodds who becomes party chair in a sort of merry-go-round within the Labour Party. Well, does any of this address Labour's fundamental problems in England? In a moment, we're going to hear from John Curtis, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, and Professor Roger Scully, the Chair of the Political Studies Association, who's been picking over the election results. But one other bit of news uh, from Keir Starmer's reshuffle uh, was uh, that he'd appointed a new head of strategy, Deborah Mattinson. Uh, who uh, you will regular listeners to the know will uh, know that she's been a regular here uh, since uh, we well since we started Times Radio back in June last year she was a pollster for uh, well for Neil Kinnock then Gordon Brown and then in 2010 she set up the research firm Britain Thinks back in August Deborah Matterson was on the show talking about focus groups she'd done where she'd asked voters to imagine the government and the Labour Party as a car. When I asked people what car they would associate with the Labour Party. I got a very unclear response, and I think this plays back to the same thing. There were a lot, you know, some people were were talking about the past. They talked about an old-fashioned mini, um, but others had very different ideas. There just isn't a clear view of what the party, the Labour Party, as it stands now, is about, and that's something they clearly have to address. So there we are. That was something they clearly had to address, says Deborah Matheson, now Keir Starmer's head of strategy. That was back in August. Well, then in September... Weirdly, spookily, we discussed the prospect of a by-election in a red wall seat, which obviously then we got in Hartlepool and Boris Johnson won it. However, eight months ago, Deborah thought Labour would win exactly this sort of vote. I think a by-election would... By-elections are always slightly weird and, yeah. and, and different. I've worked on so many of them over the years, and I think that it gives people a chance to sort of, uh, you know, stage a protest without risking the opposition actually winning winning government. Um, so I would think it, a by-election would be incredibly difficult, actually, for, for the, the Tories. Tories. Yes, yes. So in a way, it would do, Keir Starmer could do one of those to show that he was... Yes, I, yes, that's, that's quite right, yeah. That's Deborah Master saying that Keir Starmer could do with a by-election in a red wall seat to show that he was making progress. Maybe she should have listened to him because uh, in uh, March this year, only a few weeks ago, Deborah was on the show again and we discussed what she would tell Keir Starmer to do. And so maybe this is what she's telling him in her new role as head of strategy. This is what I asked her in March. So if you were advising Keir Starmer right now, Deborah, what would you be telling him? Well, I mean, I think, you know, from the poll as well, that you know, that those um, snippets from the focus groups absolutely reflect what we then saw in the poll where we had 48% of people agreeing, almost half the public, saying that the Labour Party is no more likely to represent the interests of the working class than the Conservative. As you know, Matt, I've, I spent a lot of time in the Red Wall, um, those seats that Labour lost in the last election, you know, for, for the book that I wrote, kind of interviewing people there. And this was a story that I heard again and again, this sense that that the Labour Party, as, as one of the women we just heard from there, was now very much uh, about middle class graduates in the South, rather than working class northerners and, and working class people in the Midlands. 
and a feeling that the party has sort of abandoned them. And, you know, I mean, yes, if I was advising Keir Starmer, I would be saying you need to think very carefully about how you win back those people and show them that you are, you know, the party for them. Because at the moment, those are people who have turned to the Conservatives and are not unhappy about having done that. And, you know, one of them said to me, Boris Johnson desnobified the Tory party. His persona was one they found attractive when they voted for him. They felt that he understood them and, 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 and was on their side. So, you know, there's a lot of ground for Labour to catch up on. That was Deborah Matteson uh, speaking to me back in March. Now Keir Starmer's head of strategy. So she's certainly identified all the problems. We await to see uh, what the solutions might be. Well, let's dig a bit further into what's really going on with the Labour Party's vote. I'm joined by Professor Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. Morning, John. Good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got Professor Roger Scully, Chair of the Political Studies Association. Hi, Roger. Good morning. And trying to make head and a tail of the reshuffle and what it all means, Sienna Rogers is editor of Labour List. Hi, Sienna. Hello. <laughs> we'll come to the reshuffle and all of that, first of all. Uh, John, give us a picture of, um, it, you know, we are, a, we are a nation divided, but the Labour vote is a sort of a, a thing divided too, isn't it? What is going on with the Labour vote? Where is it up? Where is it down? Whether it's in parts of England, you know, they did quite well in... Uh, Wales still no obvious sign of a fight back in in Scotland. What what's the what's the on the you know if Keir Starmer was looking for some good and bad news within the the results of last week, you've had a few days now to pick over it. What, what's 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 going on with the Labour vote? Well, um, I'll, I'll leave Roger to talk about Wales because he's much better on that than I. Um, <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, the results of the elections in England were pretty much exactly what you would expect if you've been following the opinion polls. The opinion polls have told us two things. The first is that the Conservatives enjoy a considerable lead over Labour, a lead that seems to have widened in the wake of the vaccine rollout. And I have to say, in defence of Deborah Matteson, I'm not sure I'm going to come on your programme again, Matt, if you do the thing of closing back. If you take a job with the government, John, I'll, I'll only do it if you do that. <laughs> well, OK, well, well, there's no chance of that happening, so I think I'm safe. I think you're safe, um, I think you're safe. But, but in, fair, in fairness to Deborah Matheson, you know, back in September, the Labour Party was pretty much neck and neck with the yeah. Conservatives in the polls. And I suspect she might well have been right that if the by-election had been in September of last year, as opposed to where we are now, Labour's chances would have been rather better. So let, 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 let's be fair. There. So the point is, the Labour Party has been losing ground relative to the government in the polls in the wake of the vaccine rollout. And in the wake of a Labour strategy which seems to have been focused primarily on um, trying to fillet the perceived competence of the government, but without offering a great deal in terms of what the Labour Party might do. So that's one thing we knew. The second thing we knew from the opinion polls was that simply keeping stum about Brexit was certainly not proving to be a particularly effective strategy are winning back Leave voters. And that if, you know, if you take the polls at the back end of last month and you kind of take the average of them, you were looking at the Labour Party winning 48% of Remain voters and about 18% of Leave voters. Proportions that are slightly higher in both cases than was true in 2019. Um, but the point is the gap between them has not shown. And even back in August, September, October of last year, Although Labour's overall popularity was higher, 
the gap between Remain and Leave voters was exactly the same as it was. So what therefore happened was that because these local elections were taking place, a lot of them in uh, last contest in 2016, which, by the way, was before the EU referendum. Can you remember what you were doing politically <laughs> before the EU referendum, right? And the other half was, you know, uh, May 2017, which was um, still relatively early in the Brexit process. What we saw, ir irrespective of whether it's a 2016 or 2017 baseline, we saw Labour doing relatively well and the Conservatives relatively badly in the most pro-Remain areas, under the Conservatives doing particularly well, and Labour particularly badly in the most pro-Leave areas. And by the way, nobody should have been surprised that there are, as a result of that, some places where Labour's done relatively well, because amongst those places where the last election was in 2017, when the Conservatives were, you know, 20 points ahead of the polls and at least 10 points ahead in the local elections, I mean, in those seats, there wasn't much of a swing across uh, in those. But because the Labour Party is doing better in Remain areas, in Remain Vote, strongly remain areas where the last election was in 2017, there was a swing to Labour. So there's your there's your silver lining. But equally, <laughs> there was a swing there was a swing to the Conservatives elsewhere. But the crucial point, therefore, is that I mean I think you know a lot of people uh, inside the Labour Party have kind of assumed Brexit's done, uh, people don't care about it anymore, it's all over. Well, the opinion polls have been showing very very clearly that Brexit how people voted in 2016 was still very, very clearly structuring how people were voting and that therefore the dramatic change in the character of support for both Conservative and Labour was still with us. And at least now, presumably, the, the penny will drop inside the Labour Party that whatever they might like to be true is that <laughs> Brexit is still with us and that we are dealing with a very different uh, uh, electoral landscape and the party has to work out a strategy for dealing with it. And that that strategy probably just cannot simply consist of what it seems to have been so far, which is to hope to God that politics goes back to simply a battle between left and right. And that of course, we can win the battle with the Tories on that and we can get the Leave voters back that way. And we will all be back with the, with, with the comfortable politics uh, the, the, uh, of the past. And you know, there's a deep irony here. The Labour Party, cephalogically, has shown itself to be extremely conservative in the last 12 months, by which, with a small c, by which I mean it's wanting politics to go back to the pre-Brexit the, uh, the pre world. Boris Johnson, however, is a radical cephalogically. He was willing to take the bull by the horns, he, uh, to go for Brexit, to accept that he was going to upset some of his more traditional middle-class supporters, etc., etc. Well, you know, so far history judges that radicalism has been much more effective, effective than conservatism in a in a post-Brexit world. John, that's a good, that's a great uh, roundup of where we are with a couple of tiny possible glimmers of uh, of hope for the Labour Party. Uh, Roger Scully, as John was saying, you're very much the expert on what's going on in Wales. What is it that Mark Drakeford's got that Keir Starmer hasn't? In that meant that, that, that Labour actually did pretty solidly in Wales last week. Yeah, well, I think Labour did more than solidly. They increased their vote share significantly on the, the last Senate elections in 2016. And, you know, that they've equaled their best ever performance in terms of seats. I mean, one thing that Mark Drakeford clearly has that Keir Starmer doesn't have is that Mark Drakeford's in government. He, he's First Minister. And, you know, 
we've seen consistently over the last year uh, and more uh, opinion polls in Wales showing high levels of support for the handling of the pandemic by the Welsh government. And in fact, when we compare the two, um, people in Wales generally rate the Welsh government's handling of the pandemic much more highly than they do the UK government's. Um, I, I think w one thing following on though what John was saying, you know, some people might look at Wales and think, well, that's kind of you know, a, a silver lining for Labour, that um, you know, at least in Wales, you know, Labour could do well, could hold their traditional dominance in Wales. But I think you know, we should be seeing the performance in Wales as very much a, a victory for Welsh Labour, not for the UK Labour Party as a whole. Um, I mean, the, the final opinion poll of the campaign in Wales, just on, on the eve of poll, showed that while Labour was holding a significant lead uh, for the Senate, in terms of voting intentions for Westminster, Labour and the Conservatives are more or less dead level. And I think this victory for Labour in Wales has been largely about Mark Drakeford and the Welsh Government and public approval for their handling of the pandemic, allowing that to show up Labour support specifically for the Senate. Um, but this is not something that I think will necessarily insulate Labour from all of the potential damage uh, if it comes to the context of a general election. It's really interesting. And do you think it's partly that, that, that what we actually we saw and people have remarked on this is that in the sort of government incumbency, given what's happened with the... Uh, the pandemic and then the vaccination. You know, Boris Johnson did quite well in England, uh, Mark Jaffer in, in Wales, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. If you were sort of in the hot seat and you'd managed to jab lots of people, that probably did give you a bit of a bounce? It, well, that does seem to be part of what's going on. I, I think, you know, being in government um, during a pandemic is, is clearly very difficult, but it does seem to have worked electorally to the advantage of, of the major parties. Um, in Scotland, in England, and in Wales. Um, so I, I think there's some of that. I mean, clearly, as John could could talk about, the arts, there are some very distinct dynamics in Scotland where a lot of what's going on is about the politics of independence. In Wales, I think you know, independence is nowhere near as big an issue as as Plaid Cymru found to their cost in the election last week. Um, but I think you know the pandemic has been front and centre. Um, so, I mean, one other thing, and, and here is a strong distinction between England and Wales, as John was explaining, you know, the, the patterns of, of leave and remain voting seem to be strongly structuring um, voting patterns in England. In Wales, of course, which voted for leave, uh, we, we're not seeing that. And again, you know, Welsh Labour, um, having suffered to some extent in the general election, December 2019, when it came to the Senate election, they were able to perform strongly enough, and I think you know their rating of the handling of the pandemic has been strong enough to allow them to sort of insulate themselves from a lot of those, um, a lot of those dynamics, those changes that we've been seeing in England. So some of the strongest um, leave voting areas in Wales, including, for instance, the South Wales Valleys, you know, really seeing Labour very much remaining uh, the dominant party and not seeing significant uh, swings against it. Okay, let's bring in uh, Sienna Rogers now. Sienna from uh, Labour List, the, the Labour website, uh, Labour supporting website, because of the inside track on what's going on in the Labour, in the Labour Party. Um, um, uh, Sienna, try to explain to people the logic behind the reshuffle. Given everything we've just been discussing on the on uh, the problems the Labour Party has of trying to fight the you know an old battle in thinking that Brexit or whatever it might be, what do you think is the strategy of the of moving? Angela Rayner, Rachel Weaves and Annalise Dodds round in a sort of triumvirate. 
Well, I think critics would say that the whole thing lacked a bit of strategy, to be honest. I mean, we saw this kind of start on Saturday night, as you said, when results were still coming in and there were actually some some wins and successes to be celebrated. And instead, we're all talking about this reshuffle and what was happening with Angela Rayner. So that wasn't great. In terms of the reshuffle, what has happened, it's kind of a mixed picture, I think. So obviously, Rachel Reeves has become shadow chancellor, and it seems as if Keir Starmer's actually wanted to do this for some time. So that's kind of a win for him because he's he's finally managed to do that. Moving Annalisa Dodds to party chair is a little bit of a weird one because, I mean, she's been criticised for her performance particularly in terms of communication skills. And the party chair is basically a made up role of someone who's just a spokesperson who just goes out on media and and communicates to the country and also is an organizer within the party. And that's very much not what Annalisa Dodds does. It's not what she's known for. She's a policy person. It makes more sense that she is chairing the policy review, but I don't know yet what she's gonna do with this chair role, which is quite interesting. But, um, the, but then there's also some debate that although she's she's chairing that thing, that, that Angela Rayner remains her line manager. I think there was some confusion <laughs> last night about that. <laughs> about that. Um, yeah, Angela Rayner is not her line manager. There is not that relationship. Oh, right. Going. Oh, that's good. That, that, I'm glad you've managed to clear that up. And get, get, yeah, that's, that's been cleared up. <laughs> I think, like, apparently the details of all of this were literally finalised right up to 10pm when we all got the final details, the final rundown on the Shadow Cabinet. So there was a lot of confusion going on. And the kind of the briefings war is certainly not over. I think that's the main thing I would say about this reshuffle. It's supposed to, you know, get his people in, in places that he wants to be in, um, reshape his team in the way that he wants to reshape that top team. But actually, we're coming away from this weekend with Angela Rayner having lots of different roles, um, a greater say over policy within the party, which I'm not sure they exactly wanted. And a lot of people have just been moved around rather than sacked entirely. So we've now got this huge shadow cabinet as well. I mean, there are an awful lot of them. You're absolutely right. And I suppose the big question is, it's all very really good moving people around and having a policy. The, the problem is that they need to find a way of reconnecting with voters by coming up with some ideas. Let's take a listen to when Keir Starmer marked a year uh, as Labour leader back in April, so last month. We carried out one of our Times Radio focus groups asking voters what they thought of the Labour Party and Keir Starmer. So listen to this. This is asking them, describe the Labour Party in a word. I put the word weak. Uh, change. Uh, so Keir Starmer take over. Nothing killed. Here's obviously a, a big change and change to, to come. I've gone with lost. Um, yeah. They were the people's choice, especially working class people. All my family were laboured through and through, but they just lost the votes with how things were going. Corbyn ruined it. Um, so Keir Starmer, as much as I've got quite a soft spot for him, I think he goes off on a tangent and he's lost his views and just doesn't get anyone's vote anymore. I don't really know what I think of them. I think they used to be really popular, like a lot of people used to vote for them. Um, and now I just think more people are going towards Conservatives. I've put two words, I've put positive and change. Um, I think that Keir Stammer is actually a challenge. Um, I've seen him on Breakfast TV quite, quite often. Um, in the, the past months and everything, and he is challenging what Boris Johnson's doing, and I think that's good. Uh, I've put hindsight. Yeah, 
So that's what the uh, the group said uh, back in April. And uh, we also asked the uh, time, and this was a group of swing voters uh, too, we asked them, what does Keir Starmer stand for? That's the trouble, we don't know, because we haven't uh, heard enough of it. We don't, there's no air times, because it's all COVID, so I genuinely don't know, from a personal point of view. I really don't, because it's all COVID for the last 12 months plus. Okay. So, yeah, nobody nobody seems to, seems to know. Um, uh, uh, John Curtis, uh, let's let's start with you. How big a problem is this ultimately, that you're, you're not going to get people to vote for you if they don't know what they're voting for? And actually, sometimes, like you said, you need to come down on one side of the fence or, or the other. Yeah, it's pretty fundamental, and it's clearly an area where the Labour Party's been weak. I mean, I hate to think of the number of radio interviews I've heard from uh, Labour spokespersons who have come on and said... Um, the government have failed to do this, they've made a mess of that, etc., etc. And then there is the inevitable follow-up question, but what would the Labour Party do? And the answer is, but the government has messed up about this, they haven't done that. Um, and only rarely has the Labour Party been willing to not only say what it thinks the government has been doing wrong, but then to say what it should, it should, what it should do, of which probably the, the, the boldest, and perhaps the only bold call, was last autumn when Sakia came out in favour of what was that, that then, the second English lockdown, um, uh, about a couple of weeks before in the end, Boris Johnson had to uh, introduce it. But for the most part, it has been remarkably cautious. Now, I think it's fair. It's a fair defence that to some degree, this has been a very difficult period for an opposition to lay out its stall um, uh, because of the pandemic. Um, there has been to some degree a need to temper criticism with an appreciation that we've been trying to deal with a public health crisis. But that certainly if hopefully now we are getting towards the end of the pandemic, the Labour Party do badly now need to begin to lay out some ideas. Because, I mean, just to be an effective opposition, let alone to win an election, you've got to be able to do more than to harry the government and to say, well, you said you were going to do this, but in the end, this is what's happened, etc. If that criticism is going to hit home and is going to start to persuade voters to think, well, you know what, actually, maybe the other lot could do a better job. You've got to be able to follow up the criticism of the government and the, and the gap that you think exists between what he promised and what is delivered with. And this is what we would do instead. And this is why what we would do instead would produce a better outcome. And that second crucial half of opposition has frankly seemingly been lucky. And I guess part of the part of the problem, of course, is that, you know, Labour Party is internally divided about where it should be at and should it be more or less Corbynite, etc. But the truth is that now that Sakir has got to be willing to put go over the front foot, he perhaps needs to be willing to upset some people in his party, whether they're on the left or on the right, because not having a message at all means that it's very difficult for, to persuade people that you could do something better. So, you know, we're looking at, I mean, it takes some of the party at the moment, people say, well, I'm not really sure that, the, you know, leaving aside the vaccine rollout, that the government's terribly competent, you know. But then when you ask them, and do you think the Labour Party would do a better job? Do you think the Labour Party could run the economy better? They kind of say no. So you've, the Labour Party really, really, in the end, has to sell itself yeah. as an institution with ideas that persuades people it has a sense of direction, and could run the government competently. And that bit, at least at the moment, is seriously, seriously lacking. 
John Curtis, thanks very much for that. Just finally, uh, Sienna Rogers, you, you know the inside of the letter. I mean, even my phone is full of text messages from shadow cabinet ministers, some saying uh, they had no idea what was going on, others using words that were unbroadcastable uh, yesterday. Um, uh, what's your sense about where this goes now for Keir Starmer? Is, is he in a stronger position than he was a week ago? Does he Is he still able to lead the Labour Party into the next election? I mean, I, I think a leadership challenge has become more likely, but there's still an awareness uh, from the people who would consider doing that, that last time that happened, Jeremy Corbyn is very much strengthened by that move. Um, within the party. So it probably wouldn't be the best idea, but it has become more likely. In terms of the the kind of the reshuffle and whether Keir Starmer's come out stronger, I mean, he's moved Rachel Reeves into, into the shadow chancellor role. That's his main achievement out of all this. Apart from that, things have gone a bit wrong, I think. And I think, I mean, the main dynamics now are there's Angela Rayner, who, who feels very much that she's been strengthened by all of this and that she's she's working with a Corbynite ally in the shadow cabinet, Andy McDonald. And then on the other hand, you've got the influence of Peter Mandelson. And that is quite clear. I mean, he's sort of recreating the shadow communications <laughs> that he set up in the 80s. And it, it seems like he is presiding over a lot of these decisions. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.